All right, good morning again, Coastal. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to be looking at this morning, particularly verses 11 uh, through 13. We're on week 2 of a series that Pastor Sean started last week. It's called uh, Strong in His Might. And last week, uh, Sean really emphasized the, the what of this section that, that we're working through over uh, the next couple of weeks here. Uh, the what is, we're to be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. And as believers, we know, should at least uh, be reminded of regularly, that we're completely dependent on the Lord for absolutely everything. Right? To, to be a Christian is to confess that we're a needy people. It's to, to confess that, that we're helpless apart from the Lord. It's to confess that, that we need intervention. And it's to confess even that that intervention is Christ Jesus. And that the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So Sean spent time on the what. This morning, I want to spend time on, on how we're to be strong in the Lord and even I want to spend time on the why we're called to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Uh, but before we jump into the text, we need to understand why it is that, that Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians in the first place. And if you were to read all of the book of Ephesians, all six chapters, um, you would find that really the first three, four chapters there, the Apostle Paul is really trying to ground the church at Ephesus in the gospel. He's ground, grounding them and reminding them of their identity in Christ. And in the back couple of chapters, even in chapter 6 here, we see now these are the implications, uh, or the, this is the so what uh, of uh, who you are in Christ because of what he's accomplished for you. Um, and at the time that Paul wrote the church uh, this letter, they were in conflict with, with the, the Greco-Roman culture, the broader, unbelieving, pagan uh, culture. Uh, there was this widespread worship of, of the goddess uh, Artemis. Some, some folks called her uh, Diana. And there was also emperor worship. And there were monuments, there were temples that were built in honor of the wor- worship of these, uh, these false gods here. And, and Ephesus, this church is right in the middle of it. And then on top of that, the broader culture at Ephesus, this Greco-Roman culture, they're obsessed with the occult. They're obsessed with demons. They're obsessed with demon worship. They're obsessed with magic. And so the church is in opposition to this way of life, this way of thinking. And there became this growing temptation at the church of Ephesus to abandon the faith that they proclaimed in Christ because it seemed like these, these demonic forces that were being worshipped, these false gods that were being magnified in this culture, it seemed like from their perspective that it, they were so much more powerful than Yahweh. They were so much more powerful than Jesus Christ. And so a reason, it's not the only reason, but a reason Paul writes this letter to the church of Ephesus, and particularly pins this section that we're looking at, is because he wants the church at Ephesus to understand that Christ is so much more powerful 
than what the culture is indulging in. Christ is so much more powerful than the oppressors in this pagan culture. Jesus is victorious. And this obsession with the occult and, 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 and pagan practice lies benign at the feet of their resurrected Savior. And so look with me, Ephesians chapter 6. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, he says this. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. And Lord, I thank you for reminding us of who we are in Christ through song. And Lord, I pray that over the next few minutes, that you would help us to continue with worship as I preach and as this congregation listens. And Lord, we can only do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. So help us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we need to see in this passage, um, and Pastor Sean certainly hit on it last Sunday, is that God's given us complete armor in Christ. God's given us complete armor in Christ. We, we don't lack anything as Christians. And Sean, last week, he gave us the reminder we're to be strong in the Lord, like I said, in the strength of his might. That's the what. Now, this is the how. We're to be strong in the Lord by understanding that he, God's given us complete armor in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ is to be equipped with the armor we need to be strong in the Lord. No Christ, no armor. Right? No Christ, no armor. Paul tells the church, in a, uh, in, uh, the church at Ephesus just two chapters earlier in Ephesians 4, he says, but this is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. No Christ, no armor. Paul doesn't say in this passage that there's this option for us as believers to rid ourselves of the old ways of life and then that's it. He doesn't say that. To be in Christ is to be a new self. It's to be a new creature. And for me, it's helpful to think of the old self, the new self, in terms of of even clothing. And for the gospel to only enable us to cast off, to take off our old clothes and put nothing else on, that would leave us in quite a vulnerable position, right? right? Our unclothed bodies would be exposed to all kinds of elements, all kinds of elements that, that, that would weaken our immune system and, and, and compromise our health. Like Christ, he didn't just take our sin from us. It's not the only thing he did. That's not enough. That's not redemption. That's not the gospel. 
Christ took our sin, he took that upon himself, and he gave us his righteousness completely free. Nothing that we did to be able, we didn't even grab the righteousness and say, let me, let me put that on now. He clothed us in his righteousness, his work alone. That's our new clothing. That's our new self. That's our armor. Our armor is the righteousness of Christ Jesus. It's not something in addition to Jesus. It's not something outside or apart from Jesus Christ. It is the righteousness of Christ. It is Jesus. So to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, we must be in Christ. There's no other option. And we must see that we Our armor is the righteousness of Christ, the new self, not something in addition to that. So that's how we're to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Now, why? Now, why are we to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might? I'm really going to spend a bulk of the sermon here this morning. But here's the why. The devil, his schemes, and demons are real. The devil, his schemes, and demons are real. I quoted this passage to you a few weeks ago, but uh, the Apostle Peter, he warns us of this. He says, be sober-minded. He says, be watchful. Your enemy, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And there are passages laced throughout all of Scripture that acknowledge that the devil and demons and his schemes are real. We even see in the garden the devil scheming in the form of a serpent, Adam and Eve, that then marred us all with the stain of original sin by which we commit actual sins on a daily basis. We can't ignore the reality of the devil. We can't ignore the reality of demons. We can't ignore the reality of that there's a war going on. We can't tuck our heads under the covers, right? There's a real enemy with a real agenda that involves each and every person in this room. And so how can we begin to approach thinking and have our, our minds renewed by the Word of God as we have this conversation about the devil, as we have this conversation about demons and spiritual warfare? Before we wade through it a little bit, I, I want to give us three cautions. These are three cautions when thinking about these things. Caution number one is an overemphasis. It's an overemphasis. C.S. Lewis uh, made a statement um, that I find to be helpful and relevant to to this. Uh, He says, There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One's to disbelieve their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors— and hell, a materialist, which is like an atheist in regards to these spiritual matters, or a magician, somebody who's superstitious is what Lewis means, with the same delight. And overemphasis is something I see um, uh, is an issue uh, in Pentecostal churches, uh, to be honest. It's, it's, it's an issue as well uh, with uh, Christian writers who kind of make that their sole focus. They're coming out with 12 books a year, a book a month on how the devil's making you do it. There's this overemphasis on the demonic. There's this overemphasis on spiritual warfare. 
And you, you can hear statements like that, right? Maybe you, don't, you may make the statements, the devil made me do it, but maybe you're not making those statements, but maybe you act to absolve yourself of any personal responsibility. You act as if it's the devil making you do things. And even in that, we're ascribing an attribute to the devil that, that's solely an attribute of God, which is omnipresent, which is everywhere. The devil's not everywhere. That's only God's everywhere. And the devil's probably not the one tempting you. He's not omnipresent. But I think for those of us who wrestle with this overemphasis on it, we neglect probably our main enemy, which is our own sinful flesh. And Bethany wrote about that in the Approaching Sunday blog we posted on Thursday, and I'd encourage you to check it out. But not focusing on, on our own sinful flesh really prohibits us from being able to repent of sin. It really does. So this overemphasis, this magnification of the devil and of his schemes causes us to have blind spots to our own calloused hearts. So what's a remedy for those of us who overemphasize? I think we find a remedy in James. James 1, he says, Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. On the path of death, if we have blind spots to our own corrupt nature, the cause of our sins, the cause of our anxieties and struggles, oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, is the desires within us that entice us, right? Those desires that reside in us this side of eternity because God hasn't made all things new yet. Christ hasn't returned yet. We're not in our glorified bodies yet. So we have to take responsibility in this area in order to fight sin with a biblical strategy. Now, the, the other side of the ditch is an underemphasis. Right? And so we got, now we got these two ditches here. And what I find oftentimes is there's uh, and there's the overemphasis that's a reaction based on the underemphasis, and the underemphasis is a reaction based on those who overemphasize. Now, I, th- I think the underemphasize, we see that a lot in Reformed churches, we see that a lot in Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches. This is something I myself struggle with, really over or underemphasizing uh, the devil, demons, and spiritual warfare. but this needs to be course-corrected as well. There's an article that I wrote <clears throat> that's in, your, um, in the Ephesians devotional books, and by the way, we printed more of those, and there are hard copies out at the welcome desk, but it's just one per family. But we'd love for you to grab that and read that while we're going through the series. If we run out again, it's on our website. You can access them there. Um, but <clears throat> there's an article I wrote, an introductory article that's on... Uh, this subject, and I wrote that article about two years ago for a magazine called Theology for Life, and initially when they asked me to write it, they said, can you write something on spiritual warfare? And I said, yeah, I'll write something on spiritual warfare. And they said, well, now that you've agreed to that, we want you to specifically address demonology. I was like, that was kind of a bait and switch. <clears throat> and so as somebody who underemphasizes that, I realized I needed to do some studying and some research. And so uh, I began to really look for resources out there to help inform my thinking a little bit. And what I found was one book, and again, there may be some other books out there, but this is just my own study pursuit. I found one book published in 1975, and it was the only book that was solely informed by the Scripture. There are books that come out all the time that are 
that are written based off of experiences, based off of extra biblical uh, texts. But there was only one book that I found, I included it in your handout, that was solely informed by the Word of God. And so I started to read this as he, he teased out some things. And, um, <clears throat> and in that book, he said, uh, he, and he wrote it for missionaries on the mission field to help them think through uh, spiritual warfare, specifically demonology from a biblical perspective. And he found there was only one uh, biblically informed resource outside of his when he wrote it, and it was published in 1894. So potentially, there's like 124 years from 1894 to now, and there's like two resources that are solely informed by Scripture. Again, I haven't exhausted everything, but that was just my own pursuit and my own study, and it showed me that there's an underemphasis in this particular area for some pastors, some local churches, and, and that needs to be addressed. Again, there's tons of resources out there just on the armor of God, but specifically when we get into talking about the devil and demons, it really begins to, to drop off when you get into specifics like that. But for us to ignore the reality that the devil's a real being and there, that there are a fixed number of demons that are promoting his agenda and that plague us and that they use schemes to tempt us, right? And to ignore all of that is to ignore Scripture itself. It's to ignore parts of Scripture itself. We can't believe in bits and pieces of the Bible. We can't do that. We can't fully embrace, we can't even fully embrace God in the gospel if we're atheistic in regards to our enemy and the reality that there's a war. Why is that important? First John 3.80 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeased was to destroy the works of the devil, appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So we need to see in our sin, if we have these blind spots, as we're sinning, we're identifying ourselves with the father of lies. We can't understand the gospel apart from understanding sin. We can't understand sin apart from recognizing the father of lies. And we can't overcome sin unless we realize that there's a soul, there's a war going on for our souls and for our Christian effectiveness. There really is a war going on. And caution number three, fictional emphasis. Fictional emphasis. Now, our culture, much like the culture, uh, the broader culture at Ephesus, right? We're not too far removed. I hope we see that time and time again. Uh, our culture is obsessed with the occult. For, for a culture that says that Christianity is a primitive way of thinking and it would be good if we, do, if we would just do away with it, our culture is obsessed with the demonic. New York Times put out an article in October of last year that said that 2017 was the biggest year for horror movies of all time. They grossed, just the horror movie genre grossed $733 million. People are obsessed with this kind of stuff. 
And this is why I bring it up. Most of us inside the church, many of us inside the church, we fill our minds with everything non-Christians do in the form of entertainment. Like, we somehow begin to trick ourselves to think, man, I'm not indulging in that, but I'm going to watch people indulging the very thing that Christ died for, but I'm doing it through the vehicle of entertainment. And we're impacted by that more than we realize way more than we realize. And I fear that many of us inside the church, what we're getting, the information that we're getting about spiritual warfare is really driven and informed by our entertainment habits. That really is where the bulk of it comes from, not through uh, learning about this, through a a careful study of the Scripture uh, itself. And so we've got to be careful with these kind of things. How is your impact thinking? How is your, your thinking on this particular subject shaped? How is it shaped? And what are some of the devil's schemes? Certainly, we could list a ton of schemes from the devil that we could pull from the Scripture, but I'm going to limit it for time's sake to three big areas that I think we need to be aware of in regards to the schemes that the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, The first one is this, temptations. Temptations. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because Pastor Sean is actually doing the bulk of his sermon on uh, this issue of temptations over in Gloucester this morning. And so by the end of the day, that that sermon should be available to you, and I would encourage you to to listen to it. But uh, Paul says um, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, in, uh, in regards to temptation, he says this, No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And by the way, this isn't what this passage is saying. This passage is not saying God won't give you more than you can handle, right? You hear that cliche saying, God won't give me more than I can handle, man, but it sure seems like I can handle a lot. We, we put that on billboards and hang it in restaurants. But, the, um, but this is, that's not what this is saying here. What this is saying is God absolutely will give you more than you can handle, to demonstrate that you need Christ. You need to be in Christ. You absolutely are going to come across more than you can handle. And this is what it says. With the temptation, He, God, God will provide the way of escape that you can endure it. God is the, the force behind your ability to escape a temptation that you're going to succumb to 100% of, of the time if you're not at one in Christ. And as Christians, we succumb to sin and temptation, temptation and sin, not because we're powerless, but because we want to. That gets back to our sinful flesh a little bit more. We're tempted with the things that we desire. And Paul says that in Christ, we have the way to escape temptation. Pastor Sean always says this. um, He says, in Christ, when you're a new creature in Christ... Uh, the Lord in Christ has delivered you from the power of sin. He hasn't delivered you from the presence of sin. So this side of eternity, we're always going to be in the presence of sin. But in Christ, sin's power does not dominate us the way it dominated us when we weren't in Christ. Something has changed. Something is new. The second scheme of the devil is doubting of our assurance of faith. And I'm not talking about those of us who habitually indulge in sin. 
uh, to, because when we habitually indulge in sin and we're not in this repentive posture, you're absolutely going to doubt your assurance of faith. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about those of you that are in this repentive posture where you read the Word of God and you say, I agree with the Word of God about the state of my soul. I agree with the Word of God that I need Christ Jesus. And you repent of your sin that was put to death at the cross 2,000 years ago, and now you're being pestered. You're being pestered by the father of lies, who's also called the accuser of the brethren. I won't read the passage, but Revelation 12 talks, um, um, when uh, John um, is talking about uh, the ultimate demise of Satan, he calls Satan the accuser of the brethren there. He accuses them night and day before God, is what John says. I'm talking about those types of accusations, right? Accusations... Being accused is one who's in this repentive posture, submissive before the lordship of Jesus Christ. Accusations are a scheme of the devil, or a scheme of the devil. And, and a lot of times they, they pop in your mind in the form of identity statements. So those identity statements can sound like this. If they only knew what I did, they wouldn't welcome me here at this church. Or those past sins that I've committed, that's who I really am. I need to stop faking and being who I'm not. I need to be who I am because those sins, that's what identifies me. That sin that I committed, that's an unforgivable sin. So I need to hide from God. I need to hide from the church. I need to isolate myself. Or... If I want fellowship with God, I better do some work. I better pay some penance. I better make sure that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds before I come back into the presence of God and before I show my face at the local church again. I better do those things. Those are lies and schemes from the pit of hell. They're straight from the pit of hell. And what's the the remedy for, for that type of scheme? And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, What shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. It's not Satan who justifies. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. The devil, the father of lies, the accuser didn't die. Jesus, he died. More than that, he raised. Jesus was raised, and he's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword The Apostle Paul answers his own questions with a resounding no. No. Charity Lee Smith, she penned a poem called The Advocate, and it was actually set to melody later on after she had passed, and it was renamed Before the Throne of God Above. It's a song that we sing every now and then. And and when those accusations begin to fill your mind... Right, it's helpful for us to have the strategy and the mindset of the Apostle Paul. And, and I even find myself singing the, 
the, the lyrics to, to Charity Lee Smith's poem here when she says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there. Who? I see Christ there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, to look on who? To look on Christ and pardon me. To look on Christ and pardon me. Believer, in Christ, your sins are paralyzed. They're dead at the feet of your resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, who's ruling and who's reigning. So the accusations of the devil, the one who tempts you to doubt your assurance of faith, his accusations come too late. You've already accused yourself. You've already read the Scripture. You already agree with the Scripture about the state of your soul and your need for Christ. You're in Christ, clothed in his righteousness, his armor. Three, persecution. Persecution. Paul says to the persecuted Thessalonians, he said, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. And just as it's come to pass, and just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And Paul's saying here, you shouldn't be surprised that you're persecuted. And this is a scheme of the devil being utilized to try to push you to abandon your profession in Christ. Now, as Americans, we don't experience the type of persecution that the first century church did, and we shouldn't pretend like we do. And we certainly don't experience the type of persecution that our brothers and sisters around the world presently are having to suffer and endure, and we shouldn't pretend that we do. Uh, But we do have our own unique persecutions here in this culture. Um, And we live in a culture that's embracing more and more this idea that exclusive claims from this old book called Scripture um, are dangerous. It's dangerous. It's, it's hate speech. Exclusive claims like Jesus is the only way to have peace with God. Exclusive claims about morality. I have friends who think I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely ignorant. And I always say, you have no idea how ignorant. You should ask my wife. Um, but the... Um, but I, I do I have friends that, that, that think I'm ignorant and primitive in the way that I think. I have friends that think that, that Bible-believing, uh, Bible-thinking is actually dangerous for uh, society. And I'm telling you, if you're surprised by that or if you're offended by that, then you haven't had your mind informed by the Word of God. And Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. should expect it. Paul expected it. The word world here is referring to, to belief systems and practices that a cult, uh, of, of, of a culture that's at odds with God and the gospel. And and the world should hate and persecute Christians because of God and the gospel, not because we're combative, 
not because we're rude and we think that we have the right to speak into everybody else's life. Most of us aren't experiencing persecution because of our Christian beliefs. Most of us. And most of us are experiencing what's called retaliation because we're not kind. We have a kindness problem. We don't practice self-control. We're abrasive. We demand our rights. We demand our freedoms. It's not biblical persecution. The The New Testament knows nothing of that kind of stuff. To be persecuted the way the Bible speaks of is when you're attacked because of the message that you lovingly and faithfully herald as one of God in the gospel. That's the kind of persecution the, the church knows of. Now, speaking of that, I want to talk about how the devil is organized and strategic. And the first thing that the Apostle Paul talks about is that our war is not against flesh and blood. And so kind of piggybacking off this whole persecution thing, we need to, we need to understand that our war is not against flesh and blood. Now, flesh... Sometimes in the Scripture means our sinful desires, right? But that's not what the Apostle Paul's saying here. He's talking about actual people. He's saying people aren't your enemy. People aren't your opponents. And I think the early uh, church here at Ephesus was probably beginning to wrestle with that. They were, they were in the midst of this culture that was hostile toward God and the gospel and toward the confession that Jesus is the Lord. And they probably somewhere down the line began to see these people as opponents. And so the Apostle Paul needs the first thing he says when he talks about the, the organized strategies of the devil is that you're not wrestling. You need to make sure that you understand and you remind yourself that people aren't the strategy of the debt. Like there's something behind these people. These people aren't your opponents here. And I think we wrestle with that as a church. We see people that, that aren't like us as a threat to our way of life. We really do. We want our lives to be neat and tidy. As Christians, we don't have that luxury. We don't have the luxury to have a neat and tidy life. People are messy, and if, you don't, if you're not around people that are messy, you're probably the messy one. But people are messy. Right? Non-Christians, they aren't people to be shouted down. They're the very people that we should love. Right? They're the very people that we should be dignifying. They're the very people that we should be serving. The very people we should be evangelizing. I wanted to read you. This is an account of one person who came to Christ because one family wasn't afraid to love and, and practice hospitality. Listen at this testimony. As an out lesbian feminist, a leader in the LGBTQ rights, the recent co-author of the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University, and a soon-to-be tenured radical... My heart's desire was not to become friends with the enemy. Christians seemed like a small-minded, uncharitable, immoral bunch. They ate meat, believed in corporal punishment, violated human and environmental rights at a fevered pitch, denied a woman's right to choose, and believed that the whole world should fall under the totalitarian obedience to the Bible, an ancient book fraught with racism, sexism, and homophobia. So this is someone who ends up across the dinner table from some Christians. And she walks in the door and she spends the night dining with Christians, this Christian family. And this is what she says. Nothing about that night unfolded according to my confident script. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in one simple Christian home. 
This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station. Long before I ever walked through the doors of a church building, the Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible, with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is, and eventually came face to face with him on the glittering knife's edge of my choice sexual sin. The Christian home was where I wrestled with my sexual identity and where I first dared ask the question, is being a lesbian who I really am, or is it how the fall of Adam made me? Are our hearts in a position to systematically share meals with people from this type of worldview? Do we see flesh and blood people as enemies? As, man, I don't want to get their stuff on me. Or do we see flesh and blood people as this opportunity the Lord is giving us to thwart the plans of the devil? Next, different ranks and functions of demons. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking this. Actually, I'm not going to unpack it at all because I think to do so would be to go further than what the scriptures do. Um, and there's no benefit in us speculating. But I do want you to see our text seems to uh, indicate that there are different ranks and functions for demons. There's different ranks and functions. Paul says our wrestle is with rulers against the authorities. And remember, not flesh and blood, okay? Rulers, and so this is, this is demonic spiritual influence. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. So four ranks, four functions, present darkness here, meaning the opposite of light, which is opposition to God. The light is where God dwells. And then heavenly places here literally means the heavens of the clouds. And uh, I don't know what else that means. So um, what I do know, my mind went to Job, right? Satan and Job had an exchange before Satan then began to plague Job with temptations. Um, and, and hardships, and so um, that's as far as the scriptures go. That's as far as we need to go, and I think to go beyond that is uh, not helpful. And so, so we see rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so in this conversation about the devil, demon, spiritual warfare, what is it that we need to maximize what is it that we need to maximize? Because the danger, again, is for us to maximize what we've just spent some time wading through. What do, we, what do we need to really, what needs to be this overarching perspective that we have on this congregation, or on this conversation? And it's this. Take up the armor of God and stand where you already are. Take up the armor of God and stand where you already are, right? Uh, this, this little section we had to wade through starts with put on the armor of God. It concludes here with take up the armor of God, stand. Right? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Right, Paul here, he doesn't say to advance. He doesn't say to, to gain ground on the enemy. He tells you to stand. Christian, you're standing on ground that's already been conquered. The ground's already been conquered, right? Christ has crushed the head of the serpent. The devil and, 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 and demons 
are pawns in the hand of our ruling and reigning Savior. Now, we're not timidly waiting for Jesus to conquer and to rule. Jesus has conquered. Jesus is ruling. Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And when does he stand back up? He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and it says he doesn't stand until his enemies are made his footstool. We make enemies God's footstool, not through, not through going to combat, but through the proclamation, the faithful proclamation of a clear gospel message that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, heralding that as the chief of sinners. And it says the last enemy for him defeat, to defeat is death itself. Now, I love in regards to Jesus reigning, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2.15, he, speaking of God, disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's the words that our text uses in Ephesians 6, rulers and authorities. It says he disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. It's incredible to me. If that didn't land on you, in case you didn't catch it, this is what Paul's saying. He said, God's conquered the devil and his demons, and he's rendered their schemes powerless through the absolute finished work of Christ Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. That's where we are. Philippians 2, 8 through 10, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. We're not waiting for him to be exalted. And he's bestowed on him the name that's above all names. So at the name of Jesus, every single knee will bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, those in hell will bend a knee to the absolute universal lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what we should, that should be our overarching theme. That should be our larger, broader perspective as we approach the conversation about spiritual warfare. Jesus is victorious, and his Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead lives inside of every person who's in Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we've had together, Lord, and I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that while we're still in the midst of this, the presence of sin, God, in this battle, Lord, you have conquered all through Christ. So help us to stand on that conquered ground. And we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.